Welcome to the Sloth Investor Podcast with your host, Mr. Sloth. Welcome everyone to episode seven of the Sloth Investor Podcast, a podcast series in which you'll learn more about why I believe the sloth is the most appropriate animal to characterize successful investing. And I welcome back again, Jay, my co-host. Jay, how are you? Hi, everybody. I'm glad to be back. And if you're in Hong Kong, you probably know that the weather's fantastic because it's sunny and it's clear, but it is stinking hot here right now. So incredibly hot. Incredibly hot. Oh, my goodness. Now, Jay, um, I understand that you've got some news about a great new financial education initiative in Canada. Would you like to shed a little bit more light on that? Yeah, I, I asked I asked our... our sloth investor today if we could just start off by saying um back in my home province of ontario in canada they're going to start teaching financial literacy to students my question is what took so long because this is so important i never learned financial literacy until it was way i had made some critical errors and i just wish that when i was growing up i had the opportunity to avoid those errors by someone teaching me some of the basic things like about what are um, the basics of investing? What are, um, what does it mean to have a mortgage and what does it mean to pay interest? So I'm, I'm super excited to see that that's, that's happening back in my hometown province of Ontario. So a big shout out. Woo woo. <laughs> that's fantastic. That is fantastic. We're going to get started. Let's get started on our, 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 our theme today is anti-models still, right? Mm. Um, episode two of, of anti-models. Sure. I, I wanted to go into another anti-model. You have one that's, um, for people, an anti-model for people who are missing that, I call it a start mechanism. They don't, they're paralyzed what to do, how to get started, because they don't know where to get started. Um, they don't even know how to go about it. And so they, they sit there and they do nothing and they sit on the sidelines. Can you maybe make mention of that anti-model? Yeah, thanks, Jay. Thanks. So, um, you know, we've seen, particularly with the pandemic, a real increasing interest in investing. And of course, within the last decade, with the growth of social media and particularly YouTube, there are numerous ways that people can learn about investing. Of course, some of this information is good, some of it is bad, and some of it is downright ugly. Ah. Uh, it's, it's it, can be, it can be scary looking at it sometimes. And you know what, Jay, I've just realized I've done it again. The good, the bad, and the ugly. We're, we're just a few minutes into the podcast, and that's our first movie reference of the episode. That is, that, that's a, that is a, a classic, the, the Clint Eastwood, oh. uh, prototypical Clint Eastwood movie. It really is. And you know what? Believe it or not, we've mentioned Tarantino a few times on this podcast already in the first six episodes. And if I'm right, I'm pretty sure I am. I've read this a few times now. Tarantino's favorite movie of all time is The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. So I did not know that. Yeah. So, not listeners, that. not only do you get great investing information on this podcast, but you also get to learn some... Uh, movie some trivia. Mo movie trivia. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So, Jay, not getting started, being afflicted by inertia. This is a really crucial anti-model to discuss for me. And this is because I see a lot of myself within this anti-model. So let me talk a little bit about rites of passage. Learn to read, learn to write, learn to swim, learn to ride a bike. These are considered to be rites of passage in a person's life. Now, I eventually learned to ride a bike quite a few years after my peers. So 
why did it take me so long to acquire the skills necessary to ride a bike? Well, to answer that question requires me to honestly look back and assess my attitude as an eight-year-old. I was the recipient of a bike on Christmas Day morning. I was excited. I stepped out into my garden with my- That in itself is a movie. That is a movie. Can you take me back, right? It was, it, it, Jay, it's 1991. I'm going to give my age away, but it's 1991, Christmas Day. Stepped out into the garden. I was so, my first ever bicycle. I'm excited to get going. All right. I'm, I was ready to assume mastery of my new two-wheeler. Except uh, that's not, that's unfortunately not how things turned out. A fall and then another fall, a stumble, yet another stumble, followed by a steadfast inability to persevere, led me to uh, constantly throw the bicycle onto the ground, much to my father's dismay. And the following day, witnessed a repeat of the previous day's events. So what caused my inadequacy? Was it a lack of effort from my dad? Was the bicycle too big? Uh, no, none of these reasons. For me, the chief cause was my attitude. Quite simply, I had a fixed mindset instead of a growth mindset. So, Jay, you and I both work within the realm of education. Would you like to explain what I mean by a fixed mindset and a growth mindset? Uh, in education, we hear this term quite a bit, and rightfully so. A fixed mindset means that you're sort of <clears throat> you're fixed in your position, that you you can't you can't affect change on your position. That you you have if you can't do math, you'll never learn math. If you can't learn a language, you'll never learn that language. But a growth mindset is basically you put the word yet at the end of the sentence. I haven't learned Spanish yet, but I will get there because I need to have the the right conditions put in place to allow me to be successful. And I'm going to work towards those conditions to allow me to grow and acquire those new skills. That's, is that, is that, is that an accurate summary from, for you? That's great, Jay. Yeah. Thanks, Jay. It's brilliant. So, um, when learning to ride a bike, I had a fixed mindset. The phrase, I can't do it was repeated again and again to my father during those frustrating initial attempts and would continue to be uttered to my friends and family members when the subject of a bike ride cropped up from time to time. Uh, periodically, my parents would ask whether I'd like to try again to once again attempt to obtain mastery of a bicycle, a ride of passage that comes so easily to most young people, but no, I'm not going to do anything about it was the response I commonly gave. So a time, a time after Christmas, not just Christmas Day, but yeah. uh, t days and weeks yeah. after that you still had given up on it, you're not going to be able yeah. to do it? Absolutely. Days, weeks, months, it got into years. I had a fixed mindset. For me, I'm not a bicycle rider. I wasn't able to master it first time. I lacked the patience. I simply had a fixed mindset. I should have instead said, I can't ride a bicycle yet, but instead I had that fixed mindset. So... Listeners, why am I retelling you these series of, of events? Why? What do they have to do with investing? Well, I believe there are tremendous parallels that can be drawn between my attitude towards cycling as a child and the attitudes that many people possess towards investing. Okay, so let's revisit the two phrases that I remember uttering. One, I can't do it. And two, no, I'm not going to do anything about it. I would argue that these two phrases are indicative of a mindset that also prevents many individuals from investing. Okay, so let's take the first phrase, I can't do it. To many, investing seems like an alien concept, a blurry haze of difficulty that cannot be overcome. 
Quite simply, some people fear that they are not clever enough or that they are incapable of comprehending the world of investment. For this reason, the notion of investing gets dropped in a box marked too difficult. And worryingly, this means that a significant number of people do nothing about growing their hard-earned money. Uh, a further hurdle for many to overcome may be the fact that there is little or no prior history of anyone else in their family investing. One cannot overestimate the importance of the knowledge that can be acquired from informed family members with some degree of knowledge about investing. That was certainly the case for me. People often ask me if I come from an investing background, and a simple answer is no. Anyone that is a regular listener of this podcast will know that Jay and I are both fans of Andrew Hallam, the Canadian author of books such as The Millionaire Teacher and Millionaire Expert. Go Canada. Go Canada, indeed. Now, I think perhaps the reason why Andrew Hallam's writing resonates with me is that he comes from a blue-collar background like myself. His father was a mechanic, and my father was also a mechanic. And while it wasn't his father that taught Andrew Hallam about investing, it was indeed another mechanic that taught him how to invest. Okay, so this chance encounter as a 19-year-old changed his life. And you can read more about that on the About page, on the About tab of Andrew Hallam's official website at andrewhallam.com. That's H-A-L-L-A-M for anybody who might not be familiar with him. Absolutely. Thanks, Jay, for that. Absolutely. Okay, so... Sadly, not everyone is as fortunate as Andrew Hallam. I mean, how many of us meet a millionaire mechanic? How many of us are taught at a young age about how to invest? Far too many people let themselves be swayed by underlying invisible scripts, such as, I'm not good at maths, so I therefore can't invest, or no one in my, no one in my family has ever invested, so it's just not something that someone like me does. Or perhaps... Nah, investing takes too much time. I'd rather spend my time on other aspects of my life. So for me, these invisible scripts are clearly the signs of an imposter syndrome. And I would argue that it's such an imposter syndrome that prevents many people from investing and ultimately realizing the full potential of their earned income. Quite simply, the opportunity cost of not investing is tremendous. Jay, what do you consider to be the opportunity cost of not investing? Just thinking, I'm, I'm going to parallel investing in the opportunity. We invest because we, it's an opportunity to earn, earn some more money. Yeah. And if I parallel that with your story about bicycle riding, you know, the, the lost opportunity of missing out on what all your friends were doing. So if if we invest to make more money, you ride a bike to make a, a more con a further connection with your friends and take part in the group activities, you're missing out as a child on the opportunities of all your friends who are riding bicycles. As an investor, an investor you're potentially missing out on the opportunity to earn uh, more income to provide you with a more stable uh, retirement. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, they're just... There are so many opportunity costs. There really are. And I love that parallel that you've made to bicycle riding. I hadn't really reflected upon it fully myself, to be honest with you, but um, it's true. All of those missed opportunities to go out with my friends, socialize, and um, those occasions where I could have gone out. And if I just persevered a little bit more with attempting to master that bicycle, to learn to ride a bike, but I didn't, I had that fixed mindset. All right. So you've made so many great points. And I'd also like to ask you about time. So 
I alluded to this earlier. So, hmm, let's say that an individual states that they haven't got the time to invest. They think it's going to take too long. If we consider that the first bedrock principle of the sloth investor is simplicity, Jay, I want to ask you, how could someone achieve the twin goals of A, investing with simplicity, and B, saving their time? Yeah, and you know what? I, In my opinion, um, and I was just talking about this in a chat thread that Roy and I are in, my friend Roy, and him and I are in a chat thread and with a bunch of other guys named Steve and Brandon and Tim. And one of the things we're talking about and we're throwing around ideas is um, I had the opportunity to invest. Um, I was given the advice to invest in um, Facebook and Amazon and Microsoft uh, and Google several years ago. And so someone had come to me and directly and said, you know what, you need to park some money here. And I was felt I was given some really solid investment advice. But if you don't want to be buying those individual companies and you want to buy an ETF, I said in this chat thread with my friends, you know, a really good low fee way to go about this is just to go with the Vanguard fund um, MGK. And if you're a Canadian, one of the, the low cost investment fees, um, low cost investment ETFs as a Canadian is VCN. Two, two easy ways. I, 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 when I get paralyzed because there's overchoice, I go back to, okay, I'm, I'm committed to my monthly investment. I've got to go back to what I know, and that's low-cost ETFs. Mm, absolutely. That's great advice. Great advice. And I just want to refer to something that I heard recently on another podcast. It was actually a Motley Fool podcast, and I just love this point. I love the point that was made, okay? And on a recent Motley Fool podcast, I heard this, and I think it's brilliant, okay? So for anybody who's kind of suffering from inertia, they're unsure about investing, not really sure if it's for them, I just love this. This is from a recent Motley Fool podcast. So here it is. Money doesn't grow on trees, but you can grow your money, okay? And that's what investing is like. You know, we, we know that money doesn't grow on trees, but by investing, you can grow your money and in a really substantial way. So I thought that was great. That was from a recent Motley Fool Rule Breakers podcast, and I absolutely love that. I couldn't resist noting that down. And that, really that applies nicely to this situation because it's, it's the cost of inaction. It's yeah. the cost of doing nothing. That you're, you're, you want an apple tree um, to be blue, in full bloom 10 years from now. Well, if you keep putting off planting that apple tree, you're not going to have the apples. Absolutely. It's that whole sense of the opportunity cost again. Okay. If you, if you don't take that first step, there's that, there's such a tremendous opportunity cost. Okay. So Joe, you've made a series of great points there about what investors can do if they want to save time. You've touched upon ETFs, investing with simplicity, but while we're on the subject of time, I'd like to share some insights from one of the most illuminating books I've read within the last few years, and it's called The 100-Year Life, okay? So the book is entitled The 100-Year Life by Andrew Scott and Linda Gratton. And again, the takeaways from this book speak to the pivotal reasons why it's important to invest. So this book, The 100-Year Life, explores the inevitable decisions that will, be, that will have to be taken as a consequence of humans living increasingly longer lives. So it's critically important that we recognize and indeed are ready to take advantage of the simple reality that human beings are living longer. So if you plan to retire at the traditional age of 65, then this means that you need to factor in a possible 30 plus years of retirement. 
uh, perhaps even longer if you happen to be the beneficiary of advantageous genes or you are fortunate to reap the rewards of continuing advances in medicine. So this means that there will be a tremendous amount of bills to pay for. And if you intend to enjoy an active retirement defined by travel and other leisure pursuits, then you will simply need to plan accordingly. Therefore, it's vital to ensure that you have enough money to finance your retirement. Quite simply, the earlier you begin investing in the stock market, the greater opportunity that you will have to finance the retirement that you deserve. So moving away from the concept of time on onto the concept of family, like you, Jay, I'm a father to two children, a boy and a girl. And one of the key reasons why I invest is to help to smooth their passage through life. It is my hope that the wealth that I generate can help to reduce the financial burden of the respective paths that they choose to take within their lives. Whether this is the availability of funds for things such as university tuition fees, a car, or perhaps even a deposit for a house. Can I make a, a, a touch yeah. on that really yeah, quick? Yeah. As a dad, that and we talked about financial literacy and teaching financial literacy to children at the beginning of the podcast. As a dad, one of the things I've started doing is for birthdays, I now will buy my children a stock and give them a faux stock certificate. But um, I buy them a stock and they hang it on their wall. And then that way they can start to appreciate and watch their stock gain over time. So as uh, my son, when he started investing when he was about 11 years old and he'll, he'll buy, um, uh, he's bought HXCN, um, which is an ETF back in Canada, but also there's a couple other funds that I'll surprise him with renewable energy, some renewable energy stocks that I've given him certificates for o- over the years for various events, um, as a gift. And he watches that, but what he's learned throughout that whole process, when he first purchased HXCN, which was his first um, ever stock purchase, he saw it go down. He's like, oh, should we sell? Should we sell? I said, absolutely not. This is the kind of thing you hold for 20, 30, 40 years. And now he's, he's, he's back in black uh, in a big way, but he's learned a very, very valuable lesson mm. in that process. Mm. As a dad, it's so important that we pass on financial literacy to our children at a young age so they can understand and appreciate the, the importance of um, not missing that opportunity and investing early at an early age. Absolutely, Jay. And I, I, I really love that point about what you just stated with regards to renewable energy stocks as well. Because, yeah, when I'm investing, I want to think about, okay, what difference am I making to the world? And David Gardner, okay, co-founder of The Motley Fool, makes this great point. I actually think the last time I checked his uh, Twitter account, it's, it's, it's his pinned tweet, okay? And it's I'm paraphrasing here, but it's something like... Um, Invest for the world that you want to grow into, that you want your children to live in, okay? And I just love that. I think it's so important when we're investing to think about, okay, what difference do we want to make to the world? And your point about renewable energy stocks is great there. And yeah, it's so important for us as parents, for any parents out there listening, I'm sure there are many, to pass on the information that we have learned about investing to our children, okay? And I love what you mentioned there. You spoke to your son about remaining inactive, okay? Not to worry or to fret when things get a little bit dicey, get a bit volatile in the stock market. It's a natural feature of the stock market, okay? It's what the stock market is like, okay? A central feature, okay? I think it's great that you did that. I can encourage him to hold, not for days, but for decades, okay? As mm. sloth investors, we invest for decades, okay? Because that is how we can truly appreciate the power of compounding. All right, and on to that point, connected to that point about financial literacy and how we can smooth our children's passage through life, I want to kind of 
mention here Warren Buffett. Okay, so he's arguably the world's most famous investor, and he neatly the Oracle of Omaha, right? The Oracle of Omaha. He's fantastic. I mean, we're big fans of Warren Buffett here at the Sloth Investor Podcast. We really are. And um, he neatly encapsulates the beauty underpinning this transference of wealth. Okay, he states, begin quote, someone sitting in the shade today because someone planted a tree a long time ago, end quote. I'm going to say, because it really is one of my favorite investment quotes, okay? Someone sitting in the shade today because someone planted a tree a long time ago. I love that. So, For someone undecided about investing, I would also state that investing is a choice enabler. It broadens your life opportunities. The Sloth Investor is an advocate of a buy and hold approach to investing. In short, this means that you should be reluctant to sell your shares as holding stocks for as long as possible will enable you to benefit greatly from the wonders of compound interest, like we mentioned just a few moments ago. However, There may be an occasion when you wish to sell shares due to necessity or when an exciting opportunity has arisen that requires an injection of money. For example, taking a latter point, perhaps someone has reached their mid-50s and they and their partner have decided to take a break from work for a whole year. These people are smart and they start investing little by little in their late teens. Perhaps they listen to the Stoke Investor podcast. Who knows? (laughs) (laughs) They were inspired. They were inspired, okay? And after 30 years of investing, they are are able to afford to not work for one year, okay? They can take a year off work. They've got plenty of money through investing, okay? Their hard-earned income. And during this period, during this year off, a year away from work, they plan to spend precious time with each other, reading books, even traveling a little bit more than usual, All right, so it's important to realize that your opportunities in life will compound the earlier you start investing. Remember, wealth generation creates choice. And on this point, I asked John, my father-in-law, for his thoughts. I consider Andrew Hallam and John to be my two biggest influences. Without the insights, I probably wouldn't have started investing. So I asked John, my father-in-law, for his thoughts on the opportunities that saving and then investing one's money can bring about And this is what he said. Begin quote. The habit of saving regularly, enabling the slow, steady drip of growing one's savings has enabled a very comfortable, worry-free retirement. A retirement free from rent as the home is paid for and free from money worries of all kinds and a freedom to travel and purchase big items like a new car without having to carefully budget for such things. A lifetime of investing gives you so much freedom later on. As it is a parent's duty to pass on good habits and skills to their children, the habit of steady saving and investing is an important one to pass on, end quote. Okay, so there's a a series of great points there from my father-in-law, John. The final point that he made is something that needs to be acknowledged too, and we have done a lot already on this podcast, passing on that habit of saving and investing to the next generation. And I love what Jay just mentioned about buying stocks, talking to your children about stocks, maybe even printing a stock certificate, maybe even framing it. Who knows? Sticking on a wall. It, these are just great tips, great tips. You're so, investing for the future, really. You're not you investing really for are. the here and now. Yeah. It's about the future. Yeah, you really are. You really are. And 
going back to this point about not investing, maybe spending your money on other things, hey, you know, a brand new car, splurging money in clothes instead of investing. For me, you are robbing your future self, okay? So if you're not investing, if you're spending money on those big tick items that perhaps you don't really need, okay, you are robbing your future self. So I fundamentally believe that your success as an investor can undoubtedly exert a positive compounding effect upon other people. So this could not only be family members, but friends, co-workers, and even complete strangers. Okay, so talking to other people about the fruits of your investing success will likely cause a ripple effect. So listeners, as you become a more knowledgeable, seasoned investor, I encourage you to, in a sense, pay it forward and pass on the actionable wisdom that you take from this podcast and other sources. And Jay, you know, reflecting on what I've learned from Andrew and John, John being my father-in-law and Andrew Hallam being author of The Millionaire Teacher and Millionaire Expert, uh, I couldn't help but take note of the fact that they're both teachers. Now, it got me thinking, is there something about teaching that could potentially make someone a better investor? Is it that we recognize the need to be patient, that progress doesn't occur overnight, that true success takes time? I don't know. Maybe I'm overthinking this, but but what are your thoughts, Jay? Well, I, I liken it to the fact that when we want, some, we're teaching a student to read, or a student a student how to do some um, complex mathematical equations. In year one, we don't throw them all these mathematical um, equations, and we don't throw them um, big thick novels but rather it's a step-by-step process that we draw out over a great many of years, more than a decade of being in school to build them up to be the best version of themselves. And it doesn't happen overnight. And I guess that almost as a teacher, we can appreciate the importance of patience and being slow and not giving up when it seems like all hope is lost. I think about my own children learning to read. And um, there are some days where, you felt like it'll never happen or we've regressed. We've taken two step forwards and one step back. And that's actually, now that I'm saying it out loud, it, it can almost closely be paralleled to investment. Absolutely. And Jay, it got me thinking, as you mentioned something about the, about the time taken, okay? and, and obviously time is the fourth bedrock principle to stop investor. I'm thinking about the Olympics. We've got the Olympics coming up in a few weeks' time, beginning in Tokyo this year. And for me, it's crucial to recognize investing is a marathon it's not a sprint that gives me maybe like a podcast idea Jay. maybe a future podcast we could think about sporting analogies to invest in that could be a future focus for us right we could get away from movies and go to sporting uh, analogies muhammad ali surely would be in there somewhere oh my gosh big muhammad ali fan big muhammad ali fan absolutely jay absolutely well let's let's know that one down that listeners let us know if you're keen for that one but that's something that i think could definitely be of interest to us <laughs> and to you all right so um jay we've taken a pretty exhaustive deep dive there into our first anti-model so we'll try to be a bit more concise with the remaining three so the second anti-model that i would like to discuss is the investor with a home bias to the country's domestic stock market so we could call this person home bias harry perhaps Jay, what do you consider to be the dangers of home bias? Well, and I liken it, sorry, when I think about this, I think about, um, was it Enron that went bankrupt? And somebody who worked at Enron would, um, back in the day, when in their heyday, before the financial crisis, they were making a lot of money. And if their investment was only in Enron, and then Enron went bankrupt, 
the many people like this had nothing. They had nothing left because their investment purely was in Enron. I think about the same thing um, with BlackBerry or Kodak. These companies that um, a lot of times they'll pay their their um, staff with stock options, mm. and if that's your only investment, then you're in big trouble if something goes awry with that company. And home bias Harry is going to have problems if. Um, in particular, he only invests in one sector, like technology. He only invests in one country, like Canada. Um, you know, what you talk about owning the world is the yeah. importance of making sure that you're uh, a successful investor. So that, to me, that's what what speaks to me. As soon as I, I think I think about home home bias, Harry. Mm, thanks, Jay. That's great. So I'm going to share a book quote that I used in episode three during our focus on owning the world. Okay. And of course, that's our third bedrock principle. Okay. Um, it's from a book by Daniel Crosby and it's called The Behavioral Investor. And Daniel Crosby makes a great point about investing globally in the book. It's a short quote, but it's worth repeating, especially for this discussion. Okay. Begin quote. We would all be wise to recognize that industriousness and ingenuity are not the purview of any one place and invest accordingly, end quote. Okay, so it seems obvious that, of course, there's innovative, high-quality companies in every corner of the globe and that we should invest our money accordingly. After all, no one region has a monopoly in innovation, which therefore means that this should be a key consideration for how you allocate your investments. So as investors... We should seek to go fishing where the fish are, all right? And that's how we get a good catch. We don't just fish in our domestic market, in our home market. We look to see, okay, where can we get a good catch? Where are there great investments? Where can we seek to find those great companies around the world, okay? And this is something that we explored in our third podcast episode, of course, Owning the World. So home bias is a problem that affects many of my fellow compatriots back in the UK. Many Brits make the mistake of over-investing in their home country's stock market. So initially, it's not too difficult to understand how this can occur. After all, these may be companies that Brits use on a daily basis, that they read about and are familiar with. However, it's important to remember that the UK stock market represents only around 4% of the global stock market as a whole. And as I mentioned during episode three, it's not only the Brits that fall prey to this problem. Studies have shown that many Canadian and Australian investors also commit this same error by neglecting to diversify their investments into other regions of the world and concentrating too much of their portfolio in their domestic country stock market. So Jay, do you have anything else to add on home bias? Well, actually, you know what? This this might segue nicely into our, our third anti-model, mm. which is related to forecasting. Um, can you talk a little bit more about economic forecasting? Mm, absolutely. And it, it does link in well, actually. It does link in well to uh, home bias in particular. Okay, so, you know, we've reached our third anti-model and the anti-model is related to forecasting. Okay, not very often there'll be financial forecasters who will say, oh, you know, this year's the year to invest in India. And it's going to be great, great growth or hey south america's looking good okay particularly argentina maybe there's been the inauguration of a new leader and that looks like a great country to investing but you know it's difficult to really really know which way the stock market is going to go which way a particular country stock market is going to go okay so for me 
My third anti-model is the investor that makes decisions based on economic forecasts. At first glance, the motive is understandable. After all, as human beings, we crave certainty. But as investors, we must always remember that uncertainty is the only certainty. Within the realm of investing, forecasting is very common. However, unlike the weather, accurate economic forecasts are incredibly difficult to formulate. I've recently been reading what Neil Ferguson, a historian, has to say on economic forecasts. This is taken from his most recent book entitled Doom. It's a fantastic quote. And Doom was released earlier this year in 2021. Okay, so begin quote. Economic forecasters are in reality far worse at their jobs than weather forecasters. Of 469 downturns in national economies between 1988 and 2019, the International Monetary Fund had predicted only four by the spring of the year before they began. As for the great financial crisis of 2008 to 2009, only a handful of econ economists foresaw it with any real precision. The problem is that both the weather and the economy are complex systems and in the case of the economy, the system has been grown steadily more complex since the Industrial Revolution. A complex system is made up of very large numbers of interacting components, asymmetrically organized. Some such systems operate somewhere between order and disorder, on the edge of chaos, in the phrase of the computer scientist Christopher Langton, end quote. All right, so it's incredibly difficult to forecast. It really is, okay? We're in a numbers game, and if you turn on CNBC or read the financial print media, invariably you're going to see a ton of forecasts on a daily basis, but it is truly difficult to forecast which way, up, down, bull market, bear market, which way the stock market is going to go. So, so Jay, do you have anything else to add on forecasting? Yeah, if you're, if you're new to investing, um, a, a bear market means the stock market's going to go down. Mm. A bull market means the stock market's going to go up. And if you're paying attention to economic forecasters, you're going to be one of the mistakes that I've learned early is I've got to stop listening to that, um, that sensationalism, because nobody really knows. And when the, the research clearly supports the fact that economic forecasters, they might get it right once. Yeah. The likelihood of repeating that success of um, accurately predicting how the stock market's going to behave is very unlikely. So, my one thing I would say to the newbie investor, and this myself included, I've got to remind myself, stay away from the economic forecast and just remain committed to your, your monthly or biweekly or your weekly investment goals and ignore the noise. That would be my one, that'd be my one tip to, to investors. Absolutely. So, you know, a broken clock is right twice a day, but invariably you're going to find that it is so incredibly difficult to accurately forecast the movement of stock markets. So you're right, Jay, for the newbie investor, stick to your process, stick to your continuing investments, remain inactive in terms of tweaking your portfolio and just stay the course, stay the course, stay the course. I say it again and again, that's it. And then maybe, uh, maybe this is time for us to transition to our final anti-model of the day about stock tipping. Can you shed some light for our listeners on this 
and an anti-model is the model not to follow. If I haven't made that clear. If we haven't made that clear, an anti-model is a model that you don't follow. Absolutely. And this yeah. one is on stock tipping. Yeah, absolutely. And just to go back to what you just mentioned about um, anti-models. Yes, yeah, so it's in this is the second part of a two-part series, a mini-series on anti-models. And the whole concept of anti-models comes from Nassim Taleb, okay? And he's a fantastic author. And he developed this phrase anti-models. And he stated that we can learn a tremendous amount from anti-models, okay? From recognizing the mistakes that other people make and have made, okay? So moving on to our final anti-model for today, and it's someone who acts upon a stock tip, all right? So it's common within the domain of investing to hear a stock tip, okay? Hey, company X is an upcoming tech company. They offer a great service. They're growing their revenue. They're worth investing in. in. You know, put your money into that company. Or maybe another example, company Y is a surefire winner. You have to invest in it. It's bound to go up. So remember, guys, broadly speaking, for the majority of people, low-fee, globally diversified ETFs are the way to go. However, some people may be keen to add some individual stocks to their portfolio, and this is okay. But it's important to know what you're investing in to do your research. Okay, so my listeners will know the Sloth Investor is on Twitter, and Twitter is full of a wealth of information regarding investing. But it must be said that Twitter is a double-edged sword. Mm -hmm. So it's not unheard of for some investors to read a small amount of information about a stock on Twitter, perhaps even a single tweet, and to then immediately purchase shares of this company. In my opinion, this is foolish with a capital F. It's so foolish. So yes, by all means, use Twitter as one of the tools in your individual stock research process, but please do not use it as your single frame of reference. If your interest has been piqued in a certain company by something that you read on Twitter, then by all means, use this as a catalyst for further exploration. So the next step could be reading the company's 10K, for example. A 10K is a comprehensive report filed annually by public companies about their financial performance. The 10K is a useful tool for investors to make important decisions about their investments. And commonly, you'll find a company's 10K on the company's official website. Uh, other options are to locate research on Seeking Alpha about the company you're interested in. Maybe use the Motley Fool, look through the company's website, read their investor presentation, and so on. But the point is to never, ever Never buy the stock of a company purely on the basis of a stock tip, whether this be a YouTube video, a colleague, a tweet, or heaven forbid, a TikTok video. Take the time to dig a little deeper and do your own research. Please, whatever you do, do not invest in a stock on a basis of a TikTok video. Guys, just don't do it. You know, and that's... There, you might have heard the phrase going around right now, meme stocks. Yeah, yeah. And that's what comes to mind. As soon as you talk about this, meme stocks. And, and AMC is one of those meme stocks, as an example of one of those meme stocks where people on social media are saying, buy this stock, buy this stock. And we have to remember, too, keep in mind that if someone powerful um, like Elon Musk makes mention of a stock like Dogecoin, yeah. um, it runs up. And when it runs up, people might use that as an opportunity to unload what they had because um, they know that the, the, the likelihood of it staying at a high price is not very 
very likely to happen. And so they sell, they cash in their profits while you're left holding um, a bag of nothing. Mm, absolutely, absolutely. So uh, by all means, use a tweet, use a YouTube video, use maybe a friend suggestion as a catalyst, but then use it as a catalyst for further expiration. Please don't ever just buy a stock on one single tip, okay? It's really, really critically important to remember that. Okay, Jason, they are our four anti-models today. And what I'd like to do, as I often do, I'd actually like to conclude with a quote from Daniel Crosby. He's perhaps uh, our author of the day. I very often like to use quotes from Morgan Housel, for example. But today, this is going to be the second quote that I use from Daniel Crosby. I used a quote earlier on in relation to home bias. And a quote I'm about to use is great because it speaks to two core facets of being a successful investor. And that is one, doing less by remaining inactive, and two, being humble by recognizing your flaws. And, oh man, I just reckon, I just realized, you know, thinking again about Clint Eastwood, you know, a man's got to know his limitations, okay? Another Clint Eastwood reference. That one's Dirty Harry, of course, okay? A great, great Clint Eastwood movie, Dirty Harry. We mentioned the good, the bad, and the ugly earlier. Jay, we're doing it again. These these multiple movie references. Clint Eastwood is like our act of the day, right? <laughs> <laughs> he really is, okay? So, Guys, here's a quote from Daniel Crosby, and I just love it. It's a great way for us to kind of conclude this mini-series on anti-models. Begin quote. When it comes to investing, you're not that great. Sociology, physiology, and neurology have seen to that. But that doesn't mean that there is no greatness within you. Becoming a behavioral investor is fundamentally about scraping away all of the bad lessons and fallacious visions that you've been sold and realizing that doing less gets you more. Most of all, it's about realizing that knowing yourself and building your wealth are parallel pursuits that can only be achieved as you have the personal courage to admit that you're pretty average and in so doing, put yourself on the path to becoming so much more, end quote. I love that, Jay. I think it's a great way to conclude this podcast. And um, amen to that. Yeah, amen to that. And we, you know, we've looked at eight anti-models in total. Four last week in episode six. Four this week in episode seven. And listeners, I really encourage you to reflect upon the five bedrock principles of the slow investor, but also reflect upon okay the anti-models that we've discussed over the course of the last two episodes, and consider okay how can I become a better investor? What can I do? to achieve my goal of investing for the long term. All right, Jay, I think that kind of wraps things up. All right, everybody. Thanks very much for tuning in. We'll see you on pod, uh, our next podcast. And if you want to follow the Sloth Investor, remember, go to Twitter and look for the Sloth Investor, Sloth underscore Investor. Thanks very much, everyone. Bye, everyone. <laughs>